0: Good afternoon. Good evening. Again, it's, uh, I just realised it's my last time for this time that I'm going to be here, and I wanted to make sure that I, make, I ensure that I, I convey exactly what God has laid in my heart. And you know, again, standing here, Inga has gone, so I can bring out the green and gold jersey and and put it on. He didn't know that I was wearing green and gold before, so thanks for keeping that between you and I. And as I as I said earlier, I started off with the with the youth. And I put a question to them, which is, which is up, you know, come up here. And are we going to set it up? And the question that I posed was, "Who am I?" Because as a young man, I was searching for identity. And you know, the thing is, in South Africa, we have something called an ID number. In America, it's called a social security number. And and that ID number uh, gives you uh, your personal details, and it's used everywhere whenever you want to transact whenever you want to open up a bank account or you know you bring your kids to school uh, anything that you do you need to have an id number and that id number is what says that you are a citizen of this country and that id number gives you access to uh, to a lot of things that you will not be able to receive if you were not a citizen of that country and for me as a child of god uh, initially as someone that was searching for identity i said that i grew up in south africa and and you know the history of South Africa. In the past, it wasn't uh, a country that was interracial or multiracial. It was ruled, and the law of the land was called apartheid, which said if you're not white, you are not right. If you're not white, you aren't allowed to vote. And a lot of other things that went behind it. And you've seen that. I mean, I, mean, I didn't know. For the first time in my life, when I came to New Zealand in the year 2000, and in 2001 was a 20-year anniversary of what? What happened in 1981? That's right, the Springbok tour to New Zealand. And I was told that, you know, New Zealand has, hasn't gone to war. New, ha- New Zealand hasn't had much of a civil uh, war as such. But at that time in 1981, uh, New Zealand came its closest to having a civil war. Because there were people that were for the rugby tour and those that weren't for the rugby tour. There were families that were divided. Am I saying something different, foreign? That was the truth. There were families that would sit across the dining room table and they would fight like cats and dogs. Some would say that it's only sport, but the others would say, no, it's more than that. You know, we can't support a tour from a country that segregated. I mean, there were Maoris that were not allowed to tour South Africa. And in my book, Born a Hindu, Dying a Hindu, I, I, I researched that and I found out. And it was only, I think it was last year or maybe in the year before that, that the New Zealand Rugby Union officially apologized to those Maori players that were conveniently taken off the tour to South Africa but put back on when they they went to England or Australia. Is that right? And um, why am I sharing this? Because, you know, the thing is in life, sometimes things happen that are beyond our control and beyond where we are. But the thing is, there's a God that's working behind the scenes. And we can't see the evidence at times, but it's like a seed that's planted in the ground. You know, we look at it and we wonder what's happening and it takes a few days, maybe a few weeks and then we start to see the evidence and I shared in the morning about how my mom never looked at the, the pages of my book Born a Hindu, Die a Hindu. She didn't get a chance to read it. But when my dad said to me and he called me that Friday morning at 3 o'clock in the morning to say mom had passed away, immediately God gave me a word from John 12:24. And John 12:24 says, unless the seed falls to the ground and dies, it abides alone. And that's the unique thing about A seed. And I think we're living in an area where there's a lot of uh, harvesting and there's a lot of stuff around horticulture. So you know what I'm saying, that when the seed goes in, then only can it bring forth fruit. But more than that, the seed has to dry up. The seed has to be seen as dying. And the thing is that sometimes we go through situations where, you know, we're searching and we're looking for answers and it seems that we don't have that. And for me, as a little boy in South Africa, I, I heard about this team calling themselves the All Blacks and I was totally amazed because... For me, anything black was regarded as evil. And here's this team calling themselves all blacks. I mean, how evil is that? So, I got up early morning and I put on the television and, and I was amazed to see that you know, amongst these all blacks were white fellas. And I was amazed. Like, how can these white fellas call themselves all blacks? Not realizing that you know, God had sown a seed. And 20 years later, I would be in the land of Aotearoa, the land of the long white cloud. And uh, the sport of rugby, I shared that It was not a sport that Indians played in South Africa. Uh, We didn't like it. Afrikaans was not a language that we spoke. It was language of the oppressor, sport of the oppressor. But God was able to do something like what he did with Joseph, where his brothers had intended things for evil, but God turned it around for good. And the thing is, underpinning everything that I'm saying is, is your ID, your identity. Where is your identity? Because if you seek for an identity in the world and in these things, your place of your birth, your surname, your bank balance, the car that you drive. I mean, you heard Jason Robinson and what he shared in his uh, uh, testimony of how Inga Tui had influenced his life. At a time, Jason was uh, uh, in a place where he was searching for identity. And he, he thought he could find it in a BMW. And he said, he'll buy a BMW and then he'll buy another BMW. You know, he had the money. He had the woman, the nightclubs. And uh, Jason said he wanted the approval of the guys. So he would go out and he would drink with them. And he says, the only advice that a rugby player would give you is, uh, mate, let's go have another pint. And that, that, that's the sort of advice he would get. But until God sent Inga Tri and Jason Robinson said this. I mean, if you bought Inga's book, and I think it's in the testimony book as well, Jason Robinson says, I know it sounds selfish, but I believe Inga Tri came to Wigan for me. That's what he says. He says, I believe Inga Tri came to Wigan for me. And, you know, you look at that and you realize that, you know, 2,000 years ago, God came down to this earth for you and for me. A personal God. A God that I had never known about. I mean, I knew of Him, but I didn't know Him. And I knew Him as the white man's God. Because I said to you, uh, the apartheid government in South Africa, they were Christians. They carried around Bibles. And I said, why do I want to be a Christian? Because in the apartheid uh, heaven, in the Christian heaven, there's going to be black separate, white separate, Indian separate. And that's how I saw things, until I had an encounter with this God, and that God was made real, He was made relevant in my life by my dad's brother, uh, my uncle, who lived a life that was so appealing to me. You know, I never saw him getting angry, I mean, I'm sure he may have got angry, but he never showed it in front of us, he was always singing and and laughing and joking, and whenever I was in his car, there was gospel music, and uh, whenever I was around him, you know, he'd be humming, he has made me glad, he has made me glad, you know, all those songs, and... I enjoyed being in his presence. I enjoyed going to his house. And he would pick me up and he would fellowship with me. I mean, he never preached to me. He knew that I loved sport. And he would take me to a cricket game and I would play with them cricket and I would play soccer with the church teams. And very soon I developed relationships with them to the extent that when they invited me to church, it wasn't hard for me to do that because I was friends with them and I was secure and I was comfortable being in their presence. And sometimes we get to the stage where we become so holier than thou that we look down upon people. And I had other relatives and friends that were on the other side of the coin, Christians that would tell me, you're not good enough, you're know, you going to hell, you're praying to demons. And I said you, please, if God gives you that word, check it out with Pastor Lynn and the rest of the pastors if you really need to say that to people. Because what, what people are looking for is example. You know, they say that people shut their ears to advice and they open their eyes to example. And as a parent, that's the most powerful thing you can do. You know, sometimes our kids don't live up to our expectations. They don't do what we ask them to do. But the reality is that they may not listen to your words of advice, but they open their eyes to your example. And that's, that's the most powerful thing you can do. And that's what Jason saw with Inga Tui He saw an example. And I saw an example in my uncle. And, you know, the great thing is that you can be that example. Just to fellowship with people. You know, when my mom died, I shared with you that Unfortunately, I couldn't make it to the funeral for circumstances beyond my control. But when I got there, I was only filled with good reports from my my Hindu family. And they were overwhelmed. They were like, Mayan, you should have seen your your mom's church, which was my church when I got saved. You know, we are the close family. And you know, in the Indian context, it's the close family that is there always to to do things and, and to do the preparation. But they said, we got there in 20 minutes. But in that 20 minutes, your, half your mom's church was already there. And in, your, in our family member's house, we were, we were treated like guests. The tea was being served. The samusas were being served. And uh, or the Kiwis, you know that as samosas, were being served. And they were getting really uh, treated hospitably. And so much so that my, my family began to comment about that, you know, about the, the love and, and the warmth that they were feeling. Uh, my cousin said to me, you should have heard the sermon the pastor preached. I said to my wife, uh, my cousin says to his wife, man, I, we, should, we should die, man, because it seems that uh, Mayan's my, my mom is rejoicing in heaven because the pastor was saying, man, in heaven, Mayan's mom is rejoicing. The angels are rejoicing. There's a party going on in heaven. And he says, the pastor made it so good to, to, to die and be in heaven. I said to my wife, I need to die. Then I, then I reminded him and I said, hey, mate, you know, that's the Christian heaven that, you know. And in order to enter the Christian heaven, You need to receive Jesus, and that's the entry point. And the thing is, we all have a part to play. You see, we sit in a congregation, and we may not all be able to to get up in the front and preach a sermon, but there were members in my mom's church that could make a cup of tea. Members in my mom's church that could make a cup of coffee, that could go there and serve something. And you know, making a cup of tea or coffee, the last time I checked, you don't need a degree. You don't need a high qualification to do that. To be able to and sit alongside someone that is grieving and close your mouth and not preach to them, but just sit there and hold their hand or, or sit alongside them and listen to them, it doesn't take much, but it takes the heart of compassion. And that's what Jesus had. And when you look at it, I said to the guys that we're not called to be John Waynes and Rambos and all of these people that are seen as a macho guys, you know. If you look at it, Jesus wept. Why did Jesus weep? Because He has moved with compassion. And that's what's going to change the world. It's the love of God that is going to change the world. And, and for me, I was seeking and I was searching and I looked at it and I said, you know, God, now that I'm a child of God, my ID number is in, is in these numbers, 316. John 316. That's my identity, John 316. Because God loved the world so much that He sent Jesus Christ to die for me, to pay the price for me, that I may not live in sin anymore, but I may have eternal life. And that's our identity. Our identity is in Christ. To know that irrespective of what people have said, irrespective of what people have done, there is a God that loves you so much that He gave Jesus Christ. You know, they say that you can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. And God so loved the world that He gave Jesus Christ. And in my time in South Africa, you could imagine that Jesus was this blonde-haired, blue-eyed guy. And I couldn't believe it. And I said to my uncle, I said, Man, are you telling me this guy died for me? I said, No white people died for me before. And I was amazed. Because that's what we were. Everywhere Jesus was this blonde-haired, blue-eyed person. And I said, I need to find some blonde-haired, blue-eyed people in Israel so that I can talk to them about it. But that's how I was brought up. And, And my uncle explained it to me just with the scripture because we used to do a prayer that involved the sacrificing of chickens. And we would do this every year where we would bring the chickens and I would hold the chicken and uh, my dad was the executioner and and I would hand him the chicken and and he would do the uh, execution off with the neck and we'd place the the, the chicken's uh, severed necks in front of the Hindu idols and it was a bloody sight. And that's not a swear word, that's the truth, it was bloody. because um, and, and, And going through that year after year, uh, you know, we, used to, we started off with one chicken, and then it was three chickens and five chickens. And I asked my dad, I said, dad, why are we moving in, in threes, fives and seven? And he said, I don't know, my uh, grandma says that it's got to be odd numbers. And I said, why odd numbers? Said, I don't know, I just, I just do it. There was no sort of purpose, there was no meaning for reasons why we did the odd numbers, one, three, five, seven. But the thing is, we just did it. And I asked my mom, why do we sacrifice the chickens? She said, because her mom does it. And I asked my granny, why do we sacrifice the chickens? And she said, because her mother did it. And my great granny, granny wasn't alive, to ask her that. But I remember a story that really conveys that point about just blindly doing things. There was a young man that had recently got saved. And uh, let's call him Saro. Yeah, odd name, Saro. And young Saro uh, had got recently saved. He started coming to church and he had get, got into a relationship with Jesus Christ and... Uh, there was an elder in the church, <clears throat> let's call him uh, Bob. And, uh, and Saral was, was with Uncle Bob, and, and Uncle Bob was, a, was an intercessor. And Saddle used to spend a lot of time because Uncle Bob, was taking the time to disciple him. Because it's one thing to give your heart to the Lord, and it's another thing to be discipled, to be taught properly the Scriptures and the Word. And that's what this church offers you, by the way, an opportunity to be discipled and to learn. So Saral was learning from Uncle Bob, and, and the pastor noticed that, let's call the pastor a uh, random name, Mike. Right. And Pastor Mike noticed that Saddle was, you know, he was um, obedient. He was faithful. He would come to the cell group meetings. He would come to the youth meetings. And he was regularly in church. So one day, Pastor Mike was bold enough to, to look at Saddle and say to Saddle, can you come up here, young man? Can you, can you close this meeting in, in prayer? And, and Saddle was like, yeah, I can do that, Pastor. And, and Saddle got up and he says, thank you, Jesus. <gasps> For this day, and for blessing us, and keeping us safe, amen. And uh, the congregation was dismissed, and, and Pastor Mike was just beside himself. What happened there? So he called another elder and a leader in the church. Let's say the guy's name is Sajan. And um, it's an odd random name, you know. And Sajan uh, and comes up, and, and Pastor Mike says, What happened there, Sajan? Uh, why did Saral pray like that, like he was out of breath? And Sajan said, Well, you know, Saddle was being discipled by Uncle Bob. And Uncle Bob was teaching him to pray, etc., etc. Pastor Mike says, yeah, I know that. But why did he pray like he was out of breath? And Satan said, but you see, Pastor, Uncle Bob has got asthma. (laughs) For those of you that didn't get that, uh, you can see Saddle afterwards. But I'm glad you laughed, because then you get the point behind the whole thing. And that is sometimes we just blindly follow and we do things. We become like a creature that I I think you're going to be very familiar with at the end of this. We become like a creature, the chameleon. If you can just put up the chameleon, we become like this creature here. You know, just like that little boy Saro taking on things that are around him, soaking it up. Because this chameleon, its its unique property is that, its unique feature is that it takes color from its environment. And I shared with the youth on Friday night, that God has not called you to be someone that conforms to the world, but someone that transforms the world. You know, when I got saved, my I didn't do the things. I didn't continue to do the things and, and visit the places that I used to visit and do. I remembered my um, uh, my girlfriend at the time was was a Hindu girl. And, uh, you know, being the captain of my, my soccer team and cricket team, etc., you do get to have the opportunity to have a really good-looking girl as your girlfriend. And uh, this is not recorded, by the way. My wife's not going to hear this. <laughs> Videoed. Oh, my goodness. But anyway, and at the time, I, you know, I, I got saved and I got filled with the Holy Spirit. And, I, and, I, and the love of God was so much so that no one had to tell me this. But I, I later found out that the Bible says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And I didn't know it at the time. And I went up to her and I said, you know, I'm now in a, in a, in a relationship with a living God. And I want you to know that. I cannot continue the relationship. And, and the thing is, I don't want you to feel that you have to be a Christian because I don't want you to be forced into it. But this is where I am and, and I want you to know that I, can, I can't continue. And, and her friends were beside themselves because she was like what American terminology, a prom queen or something like that. And, and they couldn't believe that she was getting dumped. And I said, no, no, it's not. I'm not dumping you. I'm just, I've just found another love. And that was like, what? And I said, no, his name is Jesus Christ. No, no, I don't mean it that way. I mean, Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior. That's who he is. And I said, if you want to join me in this relationship, then you can come along with me to the youth group and suffer like the day. But of course, she didn't choose to do that. And later on, well, I got married and um, uh, found my beautiful wife, Jolene, in, in the youth meeting. And, and that's the best place to find a wife in a nice way, you know, find a wife in the church that's following God and, and loving God. And uh, you know, got married and after a while, uh, Jolene and I bumped into this, uh, uh, this ex-girlfriend of mine and and she came up and she was so bold, I was like, oh my goodness, because it's so awkward you walk with your wife and then the next girlfriend and she has the audacity to come up to you. You know, it's one of those moments where you, you just want to say, you know, beam me up Scotty or something like that. But anyway, anyway, I, I, she came up to us and uh, and and Jolie knew her because they were in the same school, so it made it even worse, so I couldn't even say anything different, not that I would have, but anyway, she came up to us and she goes, "Man, thank you so much. And I was like, yeah, thank you for what? And... You know, and then Jolene looks at me, what did you do? And I'm like, well, I didn't do anything. And she says, no, thank you, thank you for what you did uh, you know, two years ago. And I said, what did I do? And she said, no, you broke up with me. I'm like, whew, yeah. You broke up with me. And she said, because when you broke up with me, it made me really think, why did this guy leave me? Why did he leave me? Because she said that there were other Christians that they had, friends, that were still doing other things. But when that happened, it made her really think. And it made her search, and she went home. And she confided in her mother and she said to her mother, <clears throat> you know, this is." and they were in a Hindu home, and, she, and her mother said to her, leave him, because he's found a relationship with Jesus Christ and let him be. And then her mother confided in her and said that, you know, I am a secret believer. I've been, I've been worshipping God. And, and in meeting with us, uh, she shared with us how that incident, you know, reminded her mom, and her mom was able to share the gospel with her, because her dad was a real typical Indian male that uh, you know was really strong-headed and wouldn't allow them to change. But cut a long story short, she, her mom, and her sister gave their hearts to the Lord. And all it took was me not being a chameleon, me being someone that was prepared to stand up for Jesus. And that's all it took. It didn't take anything else. And I said to you in the morning, I said that, you know, we're not all called to be evangelists, but we're called to be witnesses. And all a witness does is he witnesses on what the Lord has done in his life. So I want to encourage you with that then and just to let you know that as children of God, we're not called to take color, but to put color into our environment. We're called to put color and to really show people the way to live. They say Christians are living right side up in an upside down world. We don't go with the flow. And Jason Robinson said that so powerfully. He said that he had to realize that it's only the dead fish that go with the flow. Because I know there's peer pressure. I know there's not, and it's not just to young people. It's to older people, to us, to everybody. We all have that peer pressure in some form or the other. And what is that peer pressure? That peer pressure is really conforming to the world. And I say this to uh, my kids. I say, you know, the the, the true transformers, the the first transformers, was not these mechanical things that you see on TV and movies. The true transformers were the early apostles of God. They were the transformers. They went around transforming this world. To the extent that we now are able to, to, to know the gospel. And, and I want you to also remember that in whatever we do, you know, people are watching. And we learned that with Jason Robinson. We learned that. And, and I showed this, this picture here, uh, the one with the, with the lion and, 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 and the cat, to the young people to remind them. To remind them that, you know, in Christ, I mean, when I had this identity, when my ID was 316, it was changed from an ID from the world to 316. I was able to see myself as God saw me. I was valuable. I was loved. You know, God had a great plan for my life. And I had favor wherever I go. God's blessings were chasing me down and overtaking me. God had made me to be the head and not the tail. And to remember that I was approved. Because this this kitty cat looks into the mirror and he doesn't see himself as a kitty cat, he sees himself as a lion. And that's how you got to see yourself. I want to share with you, but the question that we had yesterday at the breakfast. The last question was a question, the first time that someone asked a question in all the the meetings and the gatherings that Enga, Tui, Gamala and I had got to. And the question was, how did you and my meet? And, you know, it's a long story, but summarized by the fact that it was God that put our parts together. And we didn't know it at the time. I didn't know it that in meeting Enga that one day I would write his book. But the whole process was, it was a... It was a process of dying to self. It was a process of, of realizing that God was in control. You know, at the time in 2009, uh, I shared that uh, the recession was at its peak and I had lost two of my major clients. I was financially in a not very good position. In fact, I think I was worse off than when I worked in Burger King coming to New Zealand. And in 2009, I began to write the follow-up to my book, Put to Palace, and I called it Beyond the Palace. And I started writing the introduction, Proverbs 18:16. A man's gift makes room for himself and brings him before great people. Because I thought that I had met all the great people that I would meet. Inga Chigumala, Yaroni Clark, uh, Michael Jones, and, and a few other people. I thought I had achieved that. And in 2009, I stopped the year of unemployed. But I also realized that my wife, Jolene, had, um, had stood by me, and she had put aside her dreams so that I could further my dreams. And I said, in 2009, Lord, we're making a, a commitment, and I'm, I'm putting a peg in the ground, and I'm saying, this year, Lord, I'm going to take the back seat. Not realizing that I'm going to start the year unemployed. But I still said, God, whatever it is, Jolene's going to go forward. She wanted to study early childhood. And she, uh, she went ahead. And I said, no, you carry on. Don't worry about our financial circumstances. You know, God will take care. And it was the first time in my life that I had the bank phone me up constantly and say, Mr. Sobrian, when can we receive your mortgage payment? Uh, we just want to let you know that your mortgage payment has not gone through this month. And I'm like, yeah, I know that. Don't you think I know that? Know, but we just want to let you know. And then they start reading through you, to you this whole uh, list of clauses, what happens when you don't pay the mortgage. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I understand, I understand, don't worry. And he went on, and the second month, they did the same thing. And they go, oh, we just want to let you know that you know, we, will, we will put your house on an auction. And I said, yeah, do it, you know, take it. Do what you need to do, it's fine. It's not a problem. And, um, and it carried on like that. And I, we were praying, and then you saw the family declaration that we had as a family. And, and every morning, we would get together, and we would pray these words. And we would pray. And you would thank God, you know, Philippians 4:13. I can do all things to Christ. God has a hope and a future. I can, God can do exceedingly abundantly. And the thing is, we didn't pray that when we were on top of the mountain. We didn't shout that out when everything was hunky-dory. Kiwis know that. We say, sweet as, easy peasy, lemon squeezy. Eh? I'll be taking this down, Saddle's Saro. got. A, I told Saddle to open up a page on his iPad. You need to do that and, and call it Kiwi Knees. And every day I'll give you some Kiwi Knees language, you know. And it, it wasn't like that. It wasn't choice or, you know, cool bananas or anything like that. Man, it was, it was tough going. But you see, we don't live according to the world. Second Corinthians 5, 7 says, We don't walk by sight, we walk by faith. And the thing is, in the natural, David saw a big Goliath. The Israelite army saw this big Goliath and they said, He's so big, how can we defeat him? David looked at this big Goliath and said, He's so big, how can I miss him? And that's the way we got to look at it. The perception. Because the problem is not the problem. The problem is how we see the problem. And that's important to remember. So we got into this year and then when it was getting really, really tough, you know, that's when Inga phoned me up. And he said, Mayan, hey, uh, what are you up to? And I said, "Ah, you know, carrying on. And he said, can you come through to my, to my office? And his office is his funeral home. And I said this with the guys, Inga the winger is no longer Inga the winger. Inga the last man to let you down. All right, he's a funeral director. I get to his office and Enger says, uh, how would you like to write my book? And I said, I said, I smiled and I said to him, I said to him, man, you're asking me a question like that. Obviously, I am I would love to write your book. And he said that, uh, he explained to me what had happened. Penguin had approached him, Penguin Books, and they would given him a list of seven authors. And all of this was happening at a time in the natural when we were in the fire. A time when we couldn't hear from God. It was like the heavens were shut up. But in faith, we had to believe in trust God by speaking these words of, of proclamation, of speaking and declaring God's word over our situation. And all of this time, Inga was in negotiation with Penguin. And Penguin came to him and they gave him a list of seven authors, well-known guys. He mentioned names like Gwyn Gray and I met them at the launch as well. And, and Inga and his wife got together and they prayed and, and, and the both of them said, came to the conclusion and they said that, hey, Inga said, you know, I don't want to use any of these authors. And she said, yes, I also agree. Because Hengist said, This story is a personal story. I want someone that's been with us, someone that experienced life with us, that will do justice to that. And then she says, Yeah, you're talking about my end. And he goes, Yes, I'm talking about my end. And I look at that, and, you know, I'm not trying to spiritualize the whole thing, but I was not on the list of seven authors. I was number eight. And there's a story in the Bible that speaks about a time when the king of Israel was going to be chosen. And the prophet goes, this house because he was asked to go to this house to choose the king of Israel. And he goes there and he, and he talks to the father and he says, I've come here to anoint your son to be the king. And the father says, well, you know, I've got, I've got more than one son. and So he says, bring them before me. And he goes to the big father because he's got to be the big father. You know, the king has got to be the strong big guy. He's got to be in a certain mold and certain image. And God says to him, "Nah, that's not him. So he goes to the second one. No, not him. Third one, fourth one, fifth one, sixth one, seventh one. Not, not the king of, of Israel. And then he says to the father, he says, do you have another son? And he goes, yeah, I've got a son. Thin and scrawny guy. Uh, you know, young boy out in the field taking care of the sheep. And he says, well, call him over. You see, David was not even in the house of his father Jesse when the prophet Samuel came to anoint him as king. Where was David? He was out in the field doing a job that the rest of his brothers didn't want to do. And I look at that and I learn about being faithful in the little that you're called to do. Because Jesus says, faithful in a little leads to much. But we want the much, but we don't want to do the little. You know, when I worked with Pierre Spies, the Springbok, to write his book, Pierre says to me, when he got selected as a Springbok, people in his church were, were amazed that here was a young man that would come an hour before the service. And you know what he was doing? He was setting up the chairs. He was, he was setting up the church, cleaning up and doing all of that. And, and a few people came up to him and said, Pierre, you don't have to do that anymore because you're a springbok." And he says, no. It doesn't change who I am. It doesn't change the fact that I'm part of a family. And Pierre says to me, my, I love my church. I love being in my community because the fans out there change. When I play bad, they, they get upset. When I play good, they cheer me. But my family is where I belong, in my church. And the thing is with David, he was doing what he was called to do because some of us want to want to get to the top, but we don't want to do what is necessary. You know, the thing is, we want to get to the palace, but Joseph had a, had a pit stop. He had a pit stop in the pit, Pit stop in the pit. Hey, there we go. And he had another pit stop in the prison. But all of that was preparation for the palace. And in, in David's life, when you fast forward to 1 Samuel 17, when... When, when Goliath is there and, and David goes and he says, I will fight this uncircumcised Philistine. I will fight him. And, and his brothers were like, Shut up. Keep quiet. You are embarrassing us. And then the king hears of it. And the king sends for him. And he comes there and, and the king says to him, well, What do you want to do? And David says, I will go against Goliath. And the king says to him, But you are just a boy. Again, the king saw the physical realm. He says, You are just a boy. Because when Samuel anointed David in 1 Samuel 16... Verses 7 onwards you read there. The Bible says God had to rebuke Samuel. Because Samuel was looking for someone big in size and stature. And he was looking in the physical. And the Lord said to Samuel, Samuel, for I the Lord do not see as man sees. Man sees the outward appearance. Man sees the inadequacies. Man sees your mistakes. Your failures. Man sees your shortcomings. But I the Lord see the heart. I the Lord see the heart. And that's why David was known as a man after God's own heart. Yes, he sinned as well. He committed adultery. But the Bible says that he repented in Psalm 51 and he moved on. Because David was a man after God's own heart. And he gets anointed as a king and, and Samuel uh, anoints him and then he comes to King Saul. And King Saul says, how are you going to go against this man of war that's trained and skilled? And you're just a little boy. And David says to him, you know what, King? You see, in my father's uh, my father's." fields, I was there protecting the sheep. A job that my brothers didn't want to do. A job that was seen as menial. A job that required me to stink, to smell. To be in a position that was far away from everyone. But you know, when I was there, I was faithful in in what I had to do. And when the lion and the bear came, I would fight them off. And you know, King, that has prepared me for such a time as this. I came here today, or this whole weekend, and what have I shared with you? I haven't shared with you fantastic exploits and things that I've done. I've shared with you the times when, when I went through the pits, the times when I went through that prison experience, the times when I was at my lowest. And what has it been to you? It's been an encouragement, and it's been an upliftment. Why? Because it's uh, those times, it's those dark times, that God will take our scars, and He will turn them into stars to take those dark times, to take those times of trouble and and persecution and inspire somebody else. Because when you walk along someone and you say to them, Hey, I know what you're feeling. I know what you're going through because of the experiences. You know, I'd rather go up Mount Everest not with someone that's read a book about Mount Everest, but with someone that has been up and come down. And that's the thing. When we want to journey with people, God allows us to, to go through that experiences so that we could be an example and a testimony to them. And that's what happened with David. David was able to use that experience to qualify him, to prepare him to fight Goliath. And we look back in our lives and we look at times when we were doing those, those menial jobs. I mean, who would have thought from, from making burgers, flipping burgers, my first job in New Zealand, I would get the chance to write the autobiography of one of the greatest all blacks. And, the, that, and that comment came from a lot of sports journalists. That rate him as one of the greatest All Blacks. And the question I ask is again, who am I? You know, Inga read this poem by Marion Williamson. Uh, it is not our fears that most frighten us, it's our light. We say, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, and talented? But who are you not to? Because when you let your light shine, you inadvertently give permission to other people to let their light shine as well. Your playing small does not serve the world. No. We are called to shine. As children of God. Because when we let our light shine, we are able to pierce the darkness in this world. And then I am in Inga's office. And Inga says to me, I told them that you are going to write my book. And they go, No, but we don't know this guy. And you know, Inga, it's a lot of money we're investing. And Inga says to them, Hold on. Whose story is this? It's my story. So if it's my story, I choose my author. And my author is Mayan Subrine. And I said to Inga, I said to him, you know, the last two years from the time I've been with you in Samoa, I've already got the first line of the book. I already know where we're going to journey with the book. Because all of the time, I had it in my mind. And he says to me, what is the first line of the book? I said, Inga, the first line of the book is going to be, Inga, your son thinks his daddy is dead. And immediately Inga was like, wow. Because he knew that those were the words that his two-year-old son said to his wife. And she conveyed it. It across the phone when Inga was in England touring with the All Blacks at the end of '93. And he said, Those are not the words you want to hear from your wife when you're missing your family. You don't you want to hear things like, Oh, you know, he, he's taking his first step or, you know, he, he's doing this and he's doing that. You don't want to hear Inga, your son thinks his daddy's dead. But that's the way that we've set the book up. I, I met with Penguin and went through the whole book and I was transported on a, on a joy ride For the first time, I visited England. And I got taken on a sort of a royal tour where I was able to go to the Mecca of rugby, Twickenham. I mean, this Indian fellow who knew nothing much about rugby, I get taken on a red carpet tour by Rob Andrew himself, the director of elite rugby in England, and I go to the rugby museum where it all started. And he says, my this is a rugby museum. Let me explain to you how rugby started. And I said, yeah, go for it. And he gave me the whole story, how this guy, Web has picked up the ball and he ran and you know, the rest, they say, is history. But I went through that whole history and how rugby divided and split into league that went up north and rugby union. And it progressed on to me, uh, even training in the Twickenham gym. I, I said to Rob, I said, Rob, you know it's, uh, He said, Rob, said, what can I do for you? And I said, Rob, can you recommend me to a gym around here? And he goes, mate, we've got a player's gym. And I said, yeah. And he goes, yeah, you've got a player's gym. And I go down and I'm training in the player's gym. I'm like, yay, look at me. And I took photographs of that as well and I went around and Rob showed me the, all the places and everything. And, and then I get to meet Jason Robinson. Uh, I meet Martin O'Faya. I don't know if you remember Martin O'Faya, Chavitz O'Faya, the legend. And uh, I'm sitting with him and, 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 you know, and he, we're going through and he tells me that you know, Inga was John Alomu before John Alomu. He was one of the first big wingers that was around. And, and you know, when he came to Wigan, he told me the difference that he made. And, and Rob Andrew, he gave Inga some advice when he saw Inga's photograph. And I don't let Enga hear this yet, because Rob Andrew gave a video message to Enga and he said, get your ass out of the KFC, bro, get into the gym. Because he was going, I mean, you saw him, he was so big. And We didn't play that at the launch, but uh, of course, I didn't show Enga that video as well, so don't tell him about that one. But going on this tour, you know, meeting other great people, people that I had thought that, I I thought I had met everyone that I would meet, and and coming from there, progressing on to writing P.S. Peace's book, And getting a chance to be with the Springbok team. Why am I telling you all this? Because we need to know that with God, all things are possible. You know, Pastor Lynn spoke about fasting and prayer. And I remembered my first fasting and prayer as a new believer. We had done it for a whole week. And on the last day, we came and um, we were really expectant. Because we had fasted the whole week. And and my friend uh, was the pastor, got up to preach this message. And he said, you know, we've been waiting on God the whole week. And I need to preach the whole word. And we're like, yeah, preach the whole word. And he said, I need to be faithful. So are you ready? We go, yeah, we're ready. We're ready. was an uncle of mine as well. And then we're waiting with expectation. And he says this. Here's the whole word that I heard from God. With Jesus, you have everything. Without Jesus, you have nothing. And he said, let us stand and close the meeting. Not today, but then. And I look at that word and, and I say, I'm so, I'm so glad that I can... Quote a sermon word for word. How many of you can do that? But I mean, after today, you can. You can quote a sermon word for word. With Jesus, you have everything. And without Jesus, you have nothing. Or as they say in Hindi, kuch nahi. You have absolutely nothing. And I look at that message and I said, what a complete message. What can you add to that? What can you take away? Nothing. And that's the bottom line. That's where the rubber meets the road. That's the bread and butter Of what we believe in. That when you have Jesus. I came here. I lost everything in South Africa. Or so I thought. The business. The finances. And I'm flipping burgers. Making those whoppers. And those junior whoppers. And our first time I learned. That the the junior whopper is four inch. And the big whopper is five inch. Am I right Sarge? Because he worked in Burger King as well. And I did all of that. And now I'm here in Twickenham. The Mecca of rugby. And I look back and I say. Well this is what it's about. That God can take what is intended for evil and he can turn it around for good. How many people have been impacted by Inga Tui Gamala's book? How many people have been impacted by P.S. Peace's book and the rest of the books that I've written? I get emails. I get, I get Facebook messages from places I've never even been to. Bangladesh, Pakistan, uh, America. I got an email from... I actually got a letter from a prisoner in America. His auntie from New Zealand had bought him put to palace and sent it to him. In America. And he wrote to me to tell me, thank you for that because Joseph was in prison and he could relate to Joseph. I got an email from a guy in Bangladesh that had got a book and I'd never been to Bangladesh. I get emails and messages from places I've never been to. And it all started off in Burger King. It started off here in the land of Atiyaroa. So I want you not to despise your humble beginnings. The Bible says that. Don't despise your humble beginnings. But you've got to hold on to your ID. 3.16. For God so loved the world. It doesn't matter what people say. You know, look at David. Where he gone? He went on. You know, he's known for fighting of Goliath. He's known for great exploits. But well, we've got to hold on to that. And we've got to remember there's a greater one in us. There's a greater one that is there. I want to look at um, this last slide for tonight. and It's the one on breaking free. Matthew chapter 8. Do you have that? Matthew chapter 8. Breaking free, and and this is, and if the band wants to come up, uh, this is the word, if you turn to Matthew chapter 8, and just to put you in the context of what's happening here, there's a leper, and for those days, lepers weren't allowed to walk around, I love the way you sang that song, how great is our God, and if we could just prepare to sing that when I finish, that will be awesome, and this leper, supposed to be in a leper colony, because all lepers were, were shunted and, and put into a leper colony. They were not allowed to come out into the mainstream of society in the community because they looked unsightly with their appendages falling off and the face did, scarred. They were regarded as unclean. But this leper, when he hears of Jesus, he hears of Jesus and he hears of a Savior that is, uh, that is able to heal him and to save him. You know what he does? He chooses to step out of the leper colony. He chooses to break away from the, the place, the norm, from the, the stigma that society had put on him. And he breaks away. And I put up there the first lesson we can learn is do not worry about crowds. Do not worry about people. Don't allow people to stand in your way. Because this leper doesn't allow people the other lepers around him would have probably said, hey, what are you doing, man? Are you crazy? Don't you know what the law says? We can't step out of this leper colony. We've got to stay here. You know what we They will kill us. Because if a leper stepped out of a colony, he or she risked being stoned to death. But this leper was prepared to take the chance to get into a place with Jesus Christ. He was not prepared to let people stand in his way to break to prevent him from receiving his breakthrough. He was prepared to venture out of his comfort zone. You know, they say you can't, step, you can't walk on water if you continue to sit in the boat. Yes, Peter did sink. And we can call him a failure. But they, I believe there were 11 bigger failures sitting back in the boat. Because except for Jesus Christ, there's only one other person that's walked on water. And I don't care whether it was for a few steps, but he walked on water. Because he was prepared to get away from the clouds. And today we live in a society that's all about peer pressure and and being a chameleon, blending in. But we're not called to be like that. We're not called to be dead fish. And the second thing we learn is that this leper comes and he bows the knee, the Bible says. And he worships him from afar. And he says, Jesus, Jesus, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And I look at that and I said, man, now that I'm in relationship with Jesus Christ, I say, why would Jesus not be willing? But this leper felt that he was not clean enough to come in front of Jesus. But what he does, he enters his presence with worship. In the morning I spoke about a sacrifice of praise. What a price, what a sacrifice this leper paid to come before the living God. He risked his life. And that was a great sacrifice. And Jesus looked at, looks at him with compassion. Because he calls out to Jesus. Jesus, if you're willing, you can save me, you can heal me. And I learned from this that it doesn't matter where we are. It doesn't matter what state we're in. God will respond to our praise. That's the promise that I have. As a Hindu, I grew up, I said, worshipping a few gods, only 3.3 million. And I didn't have that personal relationship with this God that, that came down from heaven and lived with me. I shared with you that James Owen, the famous astronaut, said the greatest event in this world is not when man walked on the moon, but when God walked on the earth. That's the greatest event. When God became Emmanuel, God with us. Wherever I go, wherever I am, He's with me. God is never too busy or unwilling to help us. Remember, the leper stepped out of his colony. He stepped out of the box that society has put in. He refused to be labeled a leper because he knew all he had to do was get to Jesus. And he gave, gives us a, a sort of a model to get there and to worship. I want to invite you today to join with me, to join with those of us that are around. And let's enter his presence with worship, even as the band would lead us with how great is our God. And even after we worship and we praise God, if, if you want to step up, Hey, why do we step out we step out to make a declaration and say God you know what maybe things are not right in my life but I'm taking a step out I'm leaving behind that place of where I was and I'm moving forward so that when I look back to today I can say I left it behind just to come forward and to worship it you know we don't want to be pew warmers bench warmers but we don't want to be spectators either we don't want to come here and have a performance We want to be able to come up and say, God, here I am, like David. God, I want to worship you. David is known as a man after God's own heart because he was a worshiper. So let's just do this. How great is our God.